Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the fifth in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout, so be sure to tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So it's great to be here again with you, Michael, and for our next installment of this series, um, looking at the many years um, across practice and application of attachment theory that you've been involved in and even development of it, you know, so um, we wanted to, I wanted to pick up with you uh, where we left off last time with the question of what happened with some of the early efforts to apply this theory to daily life, to apply it to home settings, daycare settings, hospital settings. Um, What did it mean for foster care and adoption practice to be understanding some of these things and how did it show us that we might support adoptive and foster parents? that's what we're starting off with today. So if you just launch right into whatever you would like to start with in that aspect. Well, as you can imagine, it was pretty mixed. A lot of clumsy, uh, even stupid things happened, and a lot of wonderful and thoughtful things happened as well. Uh, everything from <clears throat> childbirth education groups started talking about attachment. And for them, it often meant, though not always, a breath of fresh air, because there was a way by considering attachment theory to take into account different differences, that all mothers and all fathers and all babies are not the same, and that what attachment theory really taught us is not you ought to have it, and if you don't, you ought to feel really bad, but rather it's a slow-moving tender, vulnerable, delicate, sometimes even situational thing, this attachment. And it can vary greatly, not only from parent to parent, but child to child, even within the same family. So for example, at a childbirth preparation class, or even um, a childbirth education class, people would start talking about how their first child uh, felt this way to them, but they've never felt the same way about their second child. And they always felt really guilty about that. Now all of a sudden, with these new ideas, and people like me or you to sit around and talk with them about them, things began to make sense. Um, That child, oh, let's see, that child was underweight. And that's not his fault, so why did I feel bad? Well, I felt bad because when he was underweight, they put him in the NICU, And I came to the NICU and I stood there like a dope and I didn't know what to do and I didn't feel like a father or I didn't feel like a mother. Uh, It seemed like it was somebody else's baby. And I was pretty sure I would get over that right away, but I didn't. It took me a while to feel like he was really my baby Mm -hmm. or that I knew anything, that I was a person who knew this child and and would know what to do. And those were pretty 
I thought, pretty wonderful and creative conversations that we frankly couldn't have had before. I know for a fact that before that, moms and occasionally dads would sit around in groups like that and either lie. So they would just say, oh yeah, I just love all my babies to bits and uh, they're all the same and I just, um, or they would uh, simply not say, they would just keep it to themselves. That was a, a long-standing tradition with moms to uh, lie about mother feelings, unless they were good mother feelings, to almost everybody. May maybe the family doctor would get an earful, but uh, hardly anyone else. So shame began to go away a little bit with attachment theory. There were new ways of thinking uh, about unique babies and the fit between a particular baby and a particular mom or dad or grandma or foster parent or adoptive parents. So that was pretty wonderful. Yes, I think that um, this idea about fit is something to maybe address a little bit more because I think we have an idea that there's some specific ways and very clear behaviors of how attachment looks between a parent and child. And as you said, it can look differently. I'd like you to say a little bit more about that. Well, not only is it the obvious stuff, different kids fit different people in different ways. That's obvious. It's obvious now. It wasn't always obvious to parents. I mean, my mom birthed twin boys in 1950, and one was double the weight of the other, and one was sparkly and uh, responsive and looked at her and cuddled, and the other was scrawny and cried a great deal. And by the time he was probably four, had a patch on his eye because of the amblyopia and a whole host of things like that, she didn't feel the same about one as the other. And she did what moms did in 1950, which is tell no one that dirty, awful secret that she, she loved Doug and was uncomfortable with Jim. Um, but that, that kind of thing nowadays, I don't think would happen as much. Now it's sort of obvious. A robust child that looks you in the eye and smiles at you is a little easier to take care of for many moms, not all, but many, than a scrawny child who looks like he's gonna get sick any minute and doesn't make eye contact and doesn't eat well and cries all the time. Mm -hmm. What is less difficult, less easy, I mean, to understand is how fit varies according to not only the temperament of the parent, but the time. So for example, a child born after a pregnancy marked by, or let's say, increasing dispute between mom and dad during the pregnancy or threats by dad to leave, or mom's mom getting cancer five states away, that child may feel to that mother very different than another child just like her, same temperament, but born under different circumstances, in a different setting, a different context. So fit is a very, very complicated thing. That's yeah, I, as you're as you're talking about that, I, I'm realizing even more so that 
we're, we're trying to be to ha have too much of a specific formula for this. And um, you know, I, I suppose this speaks to wondering and curiosity as we've been talking about earlier, because we can just really shut that down. So, you know, there's so many avenues that we have where we can shut that down and just decide that we know. Um, Similarly, however, there are so many avenues for opening that up. So a skilled, a skilled interviewer, family physician, public health nurse, infant mental health specialist, social worker, child protection, has 150 directions to go into if they just approach the sit down with mom or dad with wonder and curiosity. Because stories that don't normally come out will come out if you, if you have wonder. You'll learn about the pregnancy, which you might not have even thought to ask about before, but you'll learn about it if you are full of wonder. And you don't just take, oh, it was fine, or I was, you know, not as, I didn't throw up as much as with Billy. Uh, but then you won't learn about how her mom got really sick five states away in the fifth month, and she set everything aside to go visit her, and she never thought about it before, that that changed everything. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about when you were speaking is, um, the trust, it's a, it's a level of vulnerability and um, a parent would have to trust that you're gonna withhold judgment to be able to say, you know, I feel differently about this baby than this, you know, the, the one twin or the one child or whatever. Especially if she's been accustomed to lying about it uh, to preserve a, a decent, proper maternal self-image. Mm -hmm. But that's not hard to, I don't find it hard to break through. Moms and dads read our faces pretty quickly to learn whether we are there really to understand them or whether we're there to pass judgment. Are there particular pitfalls that come to mind? I'm thinking of therapists listening to this thinking you know i don't want to be that per that therapist that a parent that i'm not curious that a parent doesn't feel safe with me that you know what what what, what do you have to say what, what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen people fall into well i tend to think of it in the opposite way what are the things that we can bring to bear but the obvious pitfalls are if you're asking yourself that question what what can I make sure I don't do so I don't be one of those therapists? Look down in your lap. What's there? Oh my God, there's a laptop there? Really? Well, let's begin there. How about that? Close the damn thing. Uh, you probably don't even really need that legal pad and pen, though it's acceptable. Depends on what you do with your eyes. Um, but there, those are the obvious pitfalls. More important yeah. to me is what you are doing. Are yeah. you with your, I mean, mentees used to ask me, so if she offers me a cup of coffee on the home visit, what's the rule? Do I take it or don't take it? And I would say, I don't know, there's no rule. <laughs> the rule is pay attention. 
The rule is be awake from the moment you walk in the door. Leave your agenda in the car, leave your outline somewhere else, come in with an eagerness to have this family teach you all about their life. And if you, if you do that, and you're lucky, you may learn something today, upon which you will then build your next question. So you don't, you don't walk in with six questions. Mm-hmm. You walk in with an attitude. And you may learn something because of that attitude that helps you know what to ask next. You will never, ever, if you have curiosity, you will never be at a loss for the next question. I love that. That's just, um, yeah, that's, that's just such a wonderful way to think about it, that, that you're not coming in with your list of questions or your laptop that you're, I mean, I'm even reacting to that at the doctor's office, you know, a, let alone a circumstance with, you know, a therapist or someone coming to see me about my child. Um, it just feels terrible, you know, having just these questions and then somebody just typing them in a computer and it, it, it doesn't, you know, you're not having eye contact and you're repeating the same thing every appointment and wondering why it's not already in there. <laughs> All of these other things that are going on rather than feeling like you're really communicating something to someone. Yeah. So back to your original question. Um, I mentioned that there were some really clumsy and dumb things we did as well. Uh, Among them that come to mind were in pediatric practice where there was just a screaming need for some understanding of attachment theory. Um, Maybe not very many people in the audience can relate to the days when you couldn't visit your own child in the hospital except at visiting hours. You couldn't be nearby during exam. Moms or dads were typically left in the waiting room and so on. And so, boy, we just licked our chops, we being the early infant mental health people thinking, we're going to go after that stuff. We can can change hospital or clinic pediatric policy quickly. And it was the most interesting thing to see us fall all over ourselves uh, about that. We began with visiting hours in a little hospital in Northern Michigan, where they were restricted like they were everywhere else. And we we made very close associations with uh, several of the nurses and one of the physicians on staff there. And they finally agreed to loosen those visiting hours and let moms be on the unit, uh, not only for to visit their children, but sometimes even uh, for procedures. And what they told us was, this is awful. We do this for a reason, that is keep visiting hours. Because you let moms and dads come in here and grandmas, and pretty soon you can't manage the kid, and he's crying, and he's upset, and moms just upset their kids when their kids are in the hospital. and It's gonna be terrible. And we said, oh, no, 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 no. Let's show you the literature here. We'll talk this through, and that won't happen. Well, it did happen because we hadn't thought through, we smart aleck new infant mental health people, we hadn't thought through what happens when a child um, doesn't have his needs met under any circumstance, but including a hospital. 
and then suddenly gets his needs met. What does he do next? Well, the little booger has the audacity to expect his needs to now continue to be met. So if I'm lonely and by myself, with or without painful procedures, and my mother is suddenly nearby, I'm going to scream my head off until I can get in her lap. And if she tries to leave me at 8.45, when time's up, I am going to protest. And last night when we had the old policies, um, that protest nobody knew about. Mm. And the nurses stood by while, while they watched this happen and said, see, you let moms come on the unit and the babies just get upset. It's better if they just don't visit or they only visit for a few minutes. So we don't have so much trouble to take care of. And they were completely correct. They were wrong in the larger sense, but in the immediate behavioral sense, they were right. You let moms come around and babies think they have a right to keep their moms around. So what did you, how did you handle that? What did you do? What did you say? What did you recommend? You mean after we apologized, after we said how embarrassed we were, after we said, you're right, we said, what are we missing here? Because we really didn't know the rest of the story. We didn't know why exactly they were crying so much. It mm -hmm. looked like they were crying because they missed their moms who were there a minute ago and now aren't. Right. So, Maybe, what if moms didn't leave then? Oh my God, the nurses really rolled their eyes about that one. You mean, now you don't want to just expand visiting hours. You want to have no visiting hours. Well, moms they just, what, like move in? And we said, we don't know, maybe. We don't know what would happen, but this isn't working. What was working, what was happening wasn't working because babies were going into despair. What? What also didn't work was that moms come in for a few minutes and then leave again. Right. We don't know what would happen if we didn't go back to despair, but did go to open, open house, so to speak. Right. Of course, that's eventually where things went. And now I think most physicians and nurses would laugh at you if you thought about doing a procedure uh, with mom or somebody that the baby loved and could trust being nearby. Mm -hmm. obvious now yes the point i was making though is that a little knowledge can really be a clumsy and even dangerous thing yes i remember when child welfare uh, started hearing about what we were doing and they liked the word bonding for some reason that stuck more than attachment or any of the other nomenclature and so all of a sudden they wanted people like us to do bonding assessments. They wanted to know if mothers were bonded to their babies. And they wanted it quick and they wanted it short and they wanted it pretty much black or white. Is she or isn't she? And so some of us eager for acceptance by child welfare, eager to have an impact on them, gave them what they wanted. We gave them reports that said this mother is bonded or this mother is not bonded to her child. And we, we failed to really teach that attachment is a nuanced thing. It's not a black and white thing. And it's not something we can learn about quickly in one observation, particularly not one at a child welfare office. 
many of the early assessments, uh, it was insisted that we come to where the visitations were occurring, and those were often at a child protection or child welfare office. We would watch uh, resistant behavior, gaze avoidant behavior on the part of the child. The social, the social worker or the child welfare person would sit, sit nearby and say, see, that's what I mean. You can tell he doesn't know his mother or he doesn't love his daddy or he doesn't trust his mom. You can see the way he's looking away and the way he's maybe even clutching at the, at the um, uh, transport lady, the lady that brought, brought the job there. And we didn't always have good information to say, well, wait a minute, we think there's another way to look at this. We think maybe children who are attached, but who lose their attachment figure and are in foster care, when they see the attachment figure again, they may not be, behave in exactly the way a lay person would think by rushing into the arms of the attachment figure. They may be in such grief that they actually avoid the attachment figure, at least for a few minutes. And they certainly are likely to avoid gaze because they're so hurt. Mm -hmm. Those were clumsy times. We made a lot of mistakes as we tried to make bonding popular. <clears throat> yes, I'm thinking about, um, you know, how we can be so married to these certain ways of viewing things that, you know, even when Bowlby showed the Robertson films and actually showed children really going into despair and collapsing from separations with their parents, even still, you know, people wanted to come up with lots of other reasons that was happening that didn't have to do with the parent. <laughs> so I think too, there's this piece of really being sure about a certain thing, just like you were saying with um, caseworkers um, or observation people thinking, well, look, it's it's very obvious that the child has no preference for this, this woman, this mother, and, and maybe even afraid of her, the way they're clinging to the worker. Um, and, you know, really um, needing to give up some of those preconceived ideas can be really difficult for, for folks, especially large systems that kind of function that way. There was another clumsy period. I, I, I don't think it's over even yet. And I, you, you should cut me off if this gets too difficult or controversial for the listeners, but the word politics got involved. Um, there was a tendency, pretty understandable, for most of us who got involved in mental health to be, well, frankly, we were mostly hippies. We were young shrinks trained in the 60s who were very liberal, uh, anti-war, uh, pro-feminism, and so on, pro-abortion. And that sounds like that would not be a problem. And it wouldn't be a problem if you could keep those worlds separate, that is, the world of politics and the world of research. But while research was showing us that babies need a very specific kind of care when they're not in their mother care, when they're not in with their primary attachment figure, 
then they need a kind of care that, as best as possible, mimics the primary attachment figure's ways. Uh, and around that same time, um, women were beginning to find careers and jobs and the joy of feeling more productive and more efficacious in their world. And that meant that along came a daycare, which was a wonderful thing for many moms. But right behind regular daycare came large institutional, non-empathic group daycare, which made no pretense of actually meeting the needs of children, but made a big pretense out of giving them care so their moms and dads could both work and the family could be happy. Mm. And those worlds collided. And if, if a person spoke up and said, well, I don't know whether daycare in and of itself is a good or bad thing. All I can tell you is this is what babies need in the form of care. And if they can't be with their primary attachment figure, they're not gonna die, but they need certain things. They need a certain kind of care. It needs to be empathic, needs to be uh, with a small number of people and so on. If those people spoke up, they really got in a great deal of trouble. Yes, you know, I wanna, we'll just take a pause here one, one second because there's somebody in particular that comes to mind that I wanna, bring up regarding that. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. This episode is the fifth in the 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Please follow our site www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.